0: Hello and welcome to Condensed Histories. I'm your host, Jim Daduchu, and what we do on Condensed Histories is we take a piece of pop culture and reveal how lurking just underneath the surface, there's some real history to be learnt. And this time round, we're doing Squid Games. And yes, I am aware that everybody and their brother has brought out something to do with Squid Games. We're really late to the party on this one because I wanted to do something quite different. I wanted people to basically talk about Squid Games. Great fun. I watched it a few weeks ago, thoroughly enjoyed it. My wife actually dropped out. She likes things with a sense of hope to them. And seeing all these people squabbling for money just left a bad taste in her mouth. And she said, I can see where this is going. There's basically only going to be a couple of people left. And they're basically going to play to the death. And I don't want to say too much. If you haven't seen Squid Games by now, then you don't own Netflix. It's from the perspective of Netflix. They have had more views of this show than anything else they have ever put on their system. So, yes, it's been a huge hit. And interestingly, what this is going to bring us into and why I wanted to have a bit of a different conversation is, no, I'm not going to be talking about kids games. In my town, we had a game called the Squid Game. I'm not going to be talking extensively about Korean cinema and TV. Instead, I'm going to be talking to you about the key message that it's making about debt. You load 16 tons, what do you get? Another day older and deeper in debt. Which means we're going to be talking about banking, which means we're going to be talking about the rise and fall of a number of different empires. And with regret, we're also going to be talking about anti-Semitism. Which is weird, seeing that there are no people of the Jewish faith in Squid Games. But we will sadly get there. Because debt is a really interesting and very much historical conversation to be had. It's affected generations of people around the world. It's such a big topic, I'm going to have to tune in and hone in on a certain amount. And it does mean that we're going to have to be talking about things like banking but don't worry i'll make it interesting i promise i'm not going to make you fall asleep in this one i am awake giving you the broadest of broad brush about squid games i think it's genius is twofold i think first of all there's the very simple idea that even though this is in korean the whole point of it is the fact that people are going to have to fight to the death over children's games mister would you like to play a game with me And so even though not all of them are games that we play here in Britain or in America, because they're aimed at kids, everybody can work out very quickly what the rules are. Now, in the actual show, people have an added advantage that the people growing up have played these games. But if I said to you Marbles, you probably can think of two or three different ways that you played with Marbles as a kid. And also Tug of War. So instantly, you know what the rules are in this scenario, in this situation. But there are multiple different games. I'm not going to to go into them now. But instantly you're hooked. It's apparently the pitch for Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, which, if you're a fan of it, you might be surprised to know that Who Wants to Be a Millionaire was a UK show first, which then got syndicated all around the world. Is that your final answer? And basically the person who pitched it to to ITV, the channel in Britain that ended up showing Who Wants to Be a Millionaire, It was simplicity itself. They said, right, I'm going to ask you a question and I'm going to put a fiver on the table. And if you get the question right, you get the fiver. So they answered the question and went, okay, but I'm actually going to leave the fiver on the table because I'm going to change that into a tenner, 10 pounds, and see if you get the question right. And they did it again. Went, right, okay, I'm going to leave it on the table, but you can can lose it all. But here's your third question. It's for 50 pounds and put down a 50 pound note. At which point the person that they were pitching to is, I get it. I get it's less to do with the questions and more to do with the sheer mind games you play with yourself. He goes, apparently the person who was getting, being asked the questions and being pitched to said, I'm getting really nervous and it's just 50 pounds and you're saying that you want a show that could potentially go up to a million that's tv that's what that's what's going to make this great and of course it was a huge an absolutely huge success so there's this sort of like this pressure and game shows we really like and this, this sort of this pursuit of money is really important in the modern world well I use the word important it's omnipresent whether or not it's important is a very different conversation. Of course, a lot of people will be perhaps screaming at the podcast right now going, you don't need money to be happy. And you're absolutely right. It's not about the money, money, money. But generally people who say money doesn't buy you happiness are people who are comfortable. What money does, I always like this definition, is money does not buy you happiness. But what it does do is it buys you choices. If you aren't particularly wealthy. In the modern world, this is something that I've sort of had to struggle with. Uh, Full disclosure, when I turned 40, I had a bit of a midlife crisis, but it didn't involve chasing women half my age and buying a fast car. No, I I started writing history books and I ran for election as a local councillor in my area. I give you... The next president of Earth. My wife was very pleased that that was how my midlife crisis manifested itself. And I won. I got to be a local councillor for four years. And I learnt a lot about how the council works. And I also learnt about how little people understand how their local council works. I mean, literally knocking on doors. I had people saying to me, what are you going to do about immigration? And it's like, um, I'm a local councillor. I, I, I don't deal with border control. I'm, I'm terribly sorry. You know? My all-time favourite question was, "What are you going to do about nuclear weapons?" I'm, I'm standing on your door. Um, I, do, you, do I look like the person who's got the codes to the nukes? Uh, not really. The point is, I've got to see how people measure poverty and. Trying to ensure that everybody is given a fair chance, particularly in their early years and their childhood, being given fair access to education and giving free school meals to the, the people who can't afford it and being aware of the vulnerable people who are perhaps coming from negative backgrounds and you know potentially dangerous parenting where the social services are involved. This is serious, serious stuff and how much impact can one person make but there were two or three things as a counsellor that I, m- I managed to do which made me think that was worth it all those other pointless meetings that i went to all the times i got shouted at by people for no reason other than the fact that i was a local counsellor it was those few little things where i know i made an actual difference to some vulnerable people that made me feel good you did it Continue. Congratulations. And if you start playing politics, by the way, you know left wing and right wing politics at local council level, you're doing it wrong. Somebody sort of comes to you about a pothole in their road that you know is sort of ruining all the car suspension. There's no such thing as a left wing pothole or a right wing pothole. Just fix the damn hole in the road. Is what I would give you a bit of advice on that one. The point here is, when it comes to poverty, there are different levels of poverty. I will never forget a trip I took to India i saw at one point when i was when i was driving in between or being driven in between two cities i saw the indian countryside it's full of beauty but it's full of absolute bottom line poverty and then the image in my head from 16 years ago i'll take it to my grave of this huge pile of rubbish and a naked child standing on top of that pile of rubbish picking through it presumably to find something to trade that's poverty and i think most people in their mind that's their idea of poverty whereas when you hear about poverty in in britain today the amount of people who genuinely genuinely cannot afford to eat is almost nil you know social services have got lots of problems there is a problem with budgeting in pretty much every council in the uk but there's enough food to go around there's enough clothing to go around we don't have time to talk about food banks and everything else and you know whether you're railing at the government right now or thinking that you know it was better 10 years ago or whatever the point is there are very different levels of poverty between britain and the countryside in india for example I mean, there's one way of looking at poverty, which I found interesting, which which I understood when I was on the education board in the council. And, in, and one definition of you are living in poverty is if you do not have access to the internet at home, because nowadays for kids and they're learning so much of their homework and submissions are online, that to not be able to do that is hindering their education. But... If that's a definition of poverty, that means everybody listening to this podcast grew up in poverty because I certainly didn't have the internet at home in the 1980s. And that's slightly facetious, but you take my point. So be careful when people start talking about poverty levels, because it might not necessarily mean what you think it might mean. But there's a lot of poverty in the world, and there's this idea of the debt trap. And this is the point of Squid Games. My kids have been seeing it everywhere. I I was going to say, going back to Squid Games, I said there were two things. One of them was the whole debt thing and, and linked to the sort of like life or death children's games. But the other one is the design. And I genuinely believe that if it had been designed differently without these sort of almost iconic images of these faceless people with just a simple circle or triangle or square on their featureless mask, wearing sort of a bright pink hoodie and and overalls. We reluctantly took all of those measures to maintain confidentiality as we brought you here. Really cheap to do, but really impactful instantly you're intrigued and you want to know more so absolutely bravo to the art department of squid games well done you but because of this it's everywhere my kids i mean it is sort of rated 15 there's scenes of sexual nature and there's a lot of violence in it the kids and the internet have picked up on this visual iconography it's just everywhere and it won't be everywhere in a year's time until we get Squid Games 2, of course, as it's been such a huge success. Generally, that means there's going to be some more of it. What's interesting is you tend to get nine episodes in Korean dramas. A friend of mine's wife has got absolutely hooked with all these Korean melodramas, and and they have a same formula. And what's nice comparing that to, say, American is, look, you can turn around and say, Breaking Bad's amazing, and it is amazing, and it's like, it's five series, 60-odd episodes. I'm going to argue that sometimes there's some filler in there and sometimes it is a bit slow. I'd rather we had half the amount of episodes, but it gave me the same level of drama. And you could do that. You could absolutely do that. With its sequel prequel called Better Call Saul, that is grindingly slow. It's great. It's brilliant drama, but there are times when I am almost shouting at the screen, get on with it. So anyway, with the Korean ones, because it's kind of like nine and done... There's plenty of time, like nine hours of TV to sort of give you character development and bring the story along, but you also know that it's going to have a satisfying ending as well. So in this one, the kids are interested in it, and obviously all you see is all the iconography and the games from Squid Games, and I turn around to the kids and say, you know, do you know what? You probably could watch it, but the problem is, in the first two episodes, there's probably ten minutes of Squid Gaming. There's an awful lot of time being spent with the actual characters and very much hammering home the point about this debt that everybody's in so quick shout out the main guy if you like i look my korean isn't particularly great so i'm only going to pick on two people but lee jung jai plays ji hun who is if you like the central character of it all and if you like there's a bit of a joke in this because the director who's also the writer an absolute hat off to him hwang dong hyuk he wanted to use Li Junjai to, to play this sort of central character, this sort of bit of a bit of a loser, bit of a gambler, bit of a, a bum, bit of a sort of he's that friend of yours who always sort of asks for a bit of money and then never pays for his share of the drinks kind of thing and all, but he's lovely. Everyone loves him. He's always a good guy, but he, he kind of never pays his way. He's always into terrible schemes that end up losing him all his money, that kind of person. But the joke is, if that's all you know him from Lee Jung-jai in Korea is a bit of a heartthrob. Nice. You know, in, in his forties now, it's perhaps not quite the heartthrob he used to be, but he's often the hero the clean cut guy so therefore to have him as this sort of slightly sleazy slightly crumpled dude is really really good fun in the first episode when he's being chased by the money lenders he bumps into this woman who's a north korean pickpocket which is where he loses his money minor spoiler there but in it he sort of bumps into her knocks the coffee out of her hand gives the coffee back to her puts the straw back in it and then keeps running away that was an outtake he was meant to bump into her and just keep going but the coffee fell out of her hand so he just did that and and improvised putting the straw back in when she sort of like doubles over you think it might be from the impact it's because she's laughing so hard because she knew it wasn't meant to happen like that oh Oh. Oh. i'm sorry hey kid you okay There isn't a lot of levity in this show, but that's a little moment. Watch out for it, and it might put a smile on your face. The thing is, though, all these people, why are they putting their lives on the line? Because they're all hideously into debt, and what they do is they show how much money they're going to be winning if they survive the squid games it's about 45 billion won which is the currency of south korea which meant meant literally everybody then went out and started doing a currency conversion going how much is that in dollars exactly so i've got a rough idea is it enough to cover most bills and the answer is yes it's in the millions not the billions and it's more than enough to clear most people's debts and have stuff left over so you could perhaps buy a house or flat and then just sort of like live off the proceedings for the rest of your life if you're careful But I also want to briefly mention Rama Valerie. He plays Ali and he confuses you when you first meet it because the thing about Korean shows is they're full of Koreans. Korea is not a particularly multicultural society. And therefore, what is this clearly Indian guy doing in it? And they wanted to show people in Korea the plight of the workforce, the immigrants working in Korea. So this is a different form of debt. And sadly, what Ali represents is people from the subcontinent all around the world. It could be Qatar. It could be America. It could be Korea. Could be China, even. The subcontinent has moved out a lot of its people. The Philippines, similarly, particularly in the Middle East, you'll find hotels are stocked full of Filipinos, and the Philippines say, Best at export are our own people. And uh, yes, their, their service is excellent, and they're highly fluent in several different languages. But the point is these people do not get to stay in the very nice hotel. They are earning basically minimum wage. Quite often they have their passports taken away from them, and they have to earn them back, if you like. So this is you know, terrible conditions in, in the under these circumstances. So all of this is highlighted in a way with... Squid Games. But just briefly back to Rama, who plays Ali. Business isn't going so well. Look at what working here did to my body, sir. I couldn't afford the hospital either. Now look here. I gotta go. Give me the wages you owe. I was sort of stunned. It's sort of like, how many Indians are actors in Korea who are fluent in Korean? And the answer is, not many, because they put out a casting call and nobody turned up, but they did manage to find out about this guy who was fluent in Korean because he went to i think seoul university and he wasn't an actor once you know that seeing him act in this in this show is like wow a bit of a natural talent there mate well done you so he, he, you know that's another form of debt that's going on in the first two episodes more than anything else it's about showing you about how once you're in the grips of debt i guess in the case of Ji Hun, there's an element also of gambling addiction going on there as well you're almost destroying your life it's almost as bad as if you're a drug addict really at this point because you're just never going to really claw yourself out of this pit unless something amazing happens which the squid games basically is trying to be so if i was to ask you about banking and go okay how far back do banks go you're probably going to say fairly logically i might add well you've got to have money before you got banks and i don't know it was Was money around, let's say, 500 BC? And I'd say, yes, if money was around then. But actually, banks go way further back than that into sort of like the ancient Sumerian and Babylonian civilizations where It wasn't money that was being used. It was grain that was being used. So you could basically stock up and and trade grain, in essence, being worth the same as a a currency, although they had no monetary system back in those days. And we're talking about 3000 B.C. So banking's been around for 5000 years. That's longer than iron. (laughs) So we've been beholden to banks for a very long time. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. Now the thing is, we need to sort of jump forwards substantially till we get to the middle ages or, or let's say post Roman Europe. Because once we got Christianity, Christianity is quite clear that you should not be lending money and asking for any extra in return. He overturned the tables of the money changers and scattered their coins. So if I lend you, let's say one florin, I give you back one florin in a month's time, and that's it. If I charge you one florin and a groat, then that's called usury and it is a sin and if you do that you're going to go to hell so because of that although technically usury is in the old testament i.e is also equivalent for the jewish faith there are multiple examples in the old testament of about how people have got round it and also it specifically says you can't charge interest to other jews so when you put all of this together it's like ah there's a loophole there so because Jews don't believe in the Christian Bible anyway. Well, let's make them the bankers. And so this is one of the areas that Jewish groups became quite effective in. On top of that, there was so many restrictions for Jews in Europe and beyond that they simply couldn't be farmers or couldn't be in the army as mercenaries or other ways to generate income. And they were not going to be part of the aristocracy, so they're never going to be owning land or having castles and things like that. So they're running out of places that they can earn a living. The two places they basically ended up was in sort of merchant banking. And and this is the interesting thing. In, In the Middle Ages, merchant banks kind of meant both mercantile trade and also banking. There was only one type of bank. There wasn't like a merchant bank in your local retail bank. It was just a bank, but it was quite often referred to as a merchant bank. They were either in the area of business in inverted commas slash banking or in the area of medicine. Because, again, there were various restrictions about what Christians could and couldn't do with dead bodies and so on and so forth. And if we're not allowed to till the soil and everything else, what else are we going to do? And that is how four centuries and you can still see it in the 21st century why there is a preponderance of people of jewish faith or jewish origins ancestry in the medical profession and in the banking profession they were forced basically into it now to give you an idea of how hard it was to be a jewish banker in the middle ages let's introduce edward I, king of england he was known by two names the flower of chivalry and the hammer of the scots And Scotland doesn't like him very much. And he was the one who finally conquered Wales. So the Welsh don't like him very much either. Point is, like everybody else in in life, there's good sides to him and bad sides to him. But he spent so much money building these very impressive castles in Wales to keep the locals down, and spent so much money on various campaigns and even a crusade at one point, that he accrued a huge amount of debt to these Jewish bankers. So he came up with the ingenious and anti-Semitic idea of Why don't we get rid of all the Jews from England? My debts are cleared. Now, that's anti-Semitic and it's deeply cynical and it's just bad in so many different ways. But here's the unfortunate thing. He wasn't the first king in Europe to come up with that idea the French kings had kicked out their Jews more than a generation earlier. It was a a regular ongoing thing in the Holy Roman Empire, which is sort of like modern day Germany and Austria. And also when Edward did exile the Jews from England, it was met with a huge amount of enthusiasm. Basically, anti-Semitism was hard-baked into the society. Nobody is looking good in this situation, I'm terribly sorry to say. And as I mentioned during the Cancelling Shakespeare episode, the point is that the Jews were exiled from Britain and they weren't come back until the time of Oliver Cromwell in roughly the 1650s. So yeah, there is a period of, give or take 350, 400 years, To give you an idea, he exiled them in the late 1200s and then the Jews come back in roughly the middle of the 1600s. So, yeah, 350, 400 odd years of no Jews in England whatsoever. And in that time, that's when Shakespeare existed, which is why he ends up getting a lot of things wrong in The Merchant of Venice. It is also worth pointing out that he managed to fail to mention that Venice has any canals as well. So, yeah, lots of problems with that. So, where did they all go? They tended to go to two places, the Iberian Peninsula, i.e. where there's lots of Jews and Muslims, Spain and Portugal, or further east into the Middle East, which were various different empires, but what was starting to form out there slowly was the Ottoman Empire. And indeed, when the Jews were expelled from Spain, the very end of the 1400s, Well, they all went to the Ottoman Empire. It is ironic that for many centuries, the safest place for Jews was not under Christian stewardship, but under Muslim stewardship. And yet today, it's a very different story, sadly. So the point here is that we've got this growth of usury, this idea of I will lend you money, but you're going to have to pay interest on it. And that does kind of feel unfair. And when it's even in your holy book saying that anybody who does that is a sinner and is going to go to hell, you can see why people really start to resent it. However, if you're a banker, you're going to want something for your services because you do actually need to pay your own. You know, you need to buy food yourself. And if all you're doing is just exchanging the same money backwards and forwards, there's never any profit for you. So you can see why usury exists in the first place. So for the record, there is even a... An islamic term for usury which is called reba and basically it's exactly the same thing you're not allowed to make money from money basically and to this day there are still some strict saudi arabian banks that you can open a bank account you can have a card and all this kind of stuff a debit card etc but you will earn no interest whatsoever on anything yeah so why would you bother working with them so You need a change of mindset before anybody's ever going to move further forwards with banking. There were some exceptions to this. Most noticeably, you've got the major trading powers, cities, in Italy. Places like Florence and Venice and Genoa. And if you like, the most famous bankers in perhaps the whole of world history are the Medici's of Florence. We Medici's have no historic name like the Patsy's. We must rely on our wits. We innovate, we create the financial instruments on which the entire continent now relies. Whom, let us not forget, didn't make their money from armies and things like that. They made it from basically being a bank. And they were a very effective bank. And they ended up basically becoming the bank of the papacy. And what's interesting is this symbol of the Medici's was five circles, basically a shield background. And if you asked a Medici, Why is this? They would tell you that their ancestor had to fight a giant, and the circles denote dents in the shield because the giant was so big and strong, but their ancestor prevailed and nobody really believed that That, because the other sign of either three or five circles is a pawn shop, which is absolutely linked to banking and is absolutely an early form of like giving somebody an asset, something that's worth something. And in return, you might be able to borrow some money. And hopefully if your business enterprise goes well, you can come back to that bank and you can give them enough money to take that, that asset back again. Interesting stuff? I'm asking you. You tell me on on Twitter, at Gem on Twitter. If you like this one, if you're sitting there going, I'm learning something this time round. Thank you. If you are, then please do spread the word. Share the love. Like, subscribe. Give us a review online. Thank you very much. But I want to then talk to you. It might be saying that the Italian banks were a big deal. But again, there were multiple times when they had the problem of powerful men basically defaulting on their loans and then they lose a lot of money. And it's a problem. The king of all of this stuff is a guy you might not have even heard of, but he's called Jacob Fugger, F-U-G-G-E-R, Jacob or Jacob Fugger, and he comes from, well, he came from the Holy Roman Empire, kind of modern day, sort of Germany, Austrian borders kind of thing, and his family made their money through principally mining, being merchants, and most importantly, banking. And he invested the money from the company to buy more and more mines of essential raw materials from the 1480s to the 1520s. So at the time when Spain is really becoming a mighty powerful thing, and and whenever there was a huge war in Europe, you're gonna need some ready cash, and kings generally have illiquid. Assets. So liquidity is really important in the modern world when it comes to debt and also in the past as well. And liquidity is basically how quickly can you turn that asset into money. So if you're lucky enough to have a mortgage on your house, you basically own your house. And if you were to sell it tomorrow, you would make a profit on it. Well done you. So you could clear the debt on the house and also have some money left over. But legally you can't sell a house in one day the paperwork takes weeks so even if you had a ready buyer you wouldn't be able to turn your house into money very quickly and that's why it is not very liquid however if you literally have some cash notes in your wallet right now that is as liquid as it gets because you can take that anywhere and people it's, it's legal tender so people are obliged to accept that as a form of payment so, to give you an idea, Jacob Fugger did such a good job of cornering financial markets, dominating mining throughout Europe, that by the time he died, he is estimated to have been worth 2% of the whole of Europe's GDP. That's gross domestic product. How big is an economy of a country? The answer is we look at their GDP, gross domestic product. It's not a perfect thing. So if you're doing DIY, that doesn't count towards it. And illegal activities aren't counted towards it. But if you look at the total amount of goods and services sold by that country in a year, that is its GDP. And to give you an idea, obviously inflation's happened, prices have gone up, so on and so forth since the time of Jacob Fugger's death. But 2% of Europe's GDP nowadays would be roughly $320 billion. So he is many times wealthier than Jeff Bezos. I'm not the richest duck in the world today because I just salted my money away. And Elon Musk and, and those sorts of people. So that is how wealthy he was. Although it is notoriously hard to sort of like compare prices in the past and so on and so forth. So, Jacob Fugger is probably a person you've not heard of, and you're thinking, going, well, I wouldn't mind marrying his daughter. That might help me in some way. There was another innovation from the, from the Christians when it came to banking to do with the Crusades. Basically, carrying money all the way from somewhere like France to Jerusalem, I think you can work out you might get robbed at some point in all of that. So it was actually the Knight Templar who invented the cheque which lasted until the early 2000s, into the 21st century, where basically what you do is you put money into a... The Knights Templar had locations throughout, had convenient banking stops around Europe. So you go into their local, in essence, monastery and deposit, let's say... 50 pounds worth money wise because actually the oldest currency that is still being used today is pound sterling from england dates back to the anglo-saxon era so pound sterling let's say you give them 50 pounds worth of silver in london and they write you out a check And then you go all the way to Jerusalem, which is going to take you a long time. And then because you can present the check to the Knights Templar in Jerusalem, and it basically says you're good for 50 pounds worth of silver, they'll give you the actual silver back again. That's exactly what a check is. I got the account where you get free customized checks. I chose the Hindenburg Flipbook series. Cool. And nowadays it's all done electronically through your debit card. But that concept goes all the way back thanks to the Crusades. But you can see how if this is an area where the jews are the few people who are going to get involved in this banking system you can see potentially how vulnerable they are and you can also see how easy it is to get angry with them when they start charging you interest so unfortunately this is an example where it's trying to increase the amount of anti-semitism going on the next thing i'm going to sort of mention is let's move it along shall we so Debt becomes a form of imprisonment in the Middle Ages as well. If you are unable to pay your debts, then your whole family will be put in a prison cell, basically. And you will live in that prison cell, you know, husband, wife, and let's say two children, something like that. And by the 19th century, you get something called literally debtors' prisons and poor houses, where in essence you're allowed to, because you've fallen into debt, you have your civil liberties taken away from you, you are now imprisoned, and you will now work in this poorhouse or in this debtor's prison until you have paid off the debt. And bizarrely, because you're there in this prison, you have to pay for board and lodgings and food in the debtor's prison while you're there. Now, if this all sounds vaguely familiar to you, that's because Charles Dickens, when he was a really, really little boy, he had a really quite idyllic life. But then his dad got into debt, which he couldn't pay, and he ended up being a boy in Marshalsea Debtors' Prison. And he was sort of so appalled by this. This sort of left such a lasting effect on him. He, as a young boy, had to stick labels on shoe polish, boot polish. Uh, bottles basically that's what he had to do as a young child to help pay off his father's debts so this is overtly talked about in his book little dorrit i mean it's there in things like oliver twist as well he is an incredibly socially aware writer and what he's trying to do is educate everybody because he knew that everybody from the rich to the poor read his stories particularly when they're serialized in in the newspapers Are there no prisons? Plenty of prisons, sir. And the union workhouses, are they still in operation? That it was a way to educate people about the state of the situation. Now, I'm not saying that Dickens led to the next point, but I think there can be no doubt that he made it a cause celebre and people worked out, took them decades, that this was perhaps the wrong thing to do. And in Britain, we get the 1869 Debtors Act, which basically decriminalizes debt. But saying that to this day, I know people who are kind of crippled by debt. I know people who, because in particularly in America with the IRS, it's an, from British perspective, it is an insane system where basically the U.S. government says, how much tax do you think you, you need to pay this year? And if you get it wrong, you get fined or you could go to prison. It's like that's insane. Maybe you IRS should help me work it out because I want to pay my taxes. I don't want to get it wrong. At the same time, I don't want to pay excessive amounts of taxes because I'd like to pay what I actually have to pay. Thank you very much. Obviously, there are some rich people who spend a lot of time trying to do trying to reduce their tax bills. So, yes, debt is still here. If you are in debt. Please, there are a number of financial ombudsmen and sort of financial helplines that might be able to help you get out of your debt situation. It's quite often not people's faults. Sometimes it is, okay? Stop spending money on credit cards on stuff you don't need please, you don't need a PlayStation five or things like that. But there are many times when people through illness, for example, or in America, suddenly through medical bills and things like that, where the insurance doesn't pay out, it can financially cripple an individual. So yes, on a very serious point, there are organizations out there who aren't going to give you money and sort it all out for you, but might be able to give you some help. One of the key causes for suicide, sadly, in the Western world is because of financial issues. And if you like, Squid Game, in its weird, colourful, surreal way, shows you how dangerous this is. These people are willing to literally risk their lives to get out of debt, which is a very sobering thought at the end of this very weird and wonderful TV show. So I'm going to leave it there. Thank you very much for listening to this one. And as always, there'll be another podcast soon.